0: Welcome to Kernels of Nutrition, the brand new podcast series powered by the Almond Board of California. My name is Rosie Long. I'm an AFN registered associate nutritionist. And in this series, I'll be chatting to some of the leading nutrition professionals in the UK about their experiences and how they successfully communicate health and nutrition messages through the work they do with brands, the media, and more recently on social media too. This podcast is part of the Almond Board of California's Almond Academy a learning and development platform developed by health professionals to help other nutritionists and dietitians advance and refine their existing skills. Visit almonds.co.uk to listen to other podcasts in the series, sign up to the Almond Board's Nutrition Bulletin and access all other Almond Academy resources. With me today is registered dietitian Juliet Kello. Having left behind clinical work early on in her career, Juliet carved a name for herself in the media world, landing roles as editor in magazines such as Topsante and Slimming Magazine, before branching out into freelance, freelance nutrition consultancy. Juliet, as a highly experienced consultant dietitian, has been working with the Almond Board of California for the last three years, along with supporting a number of other brands and food companies with PR campaigns, product development, and marketing communications. In this episode, we'll be exploring how Juliet has made a name for herself in the media and consultancy space and how to work with brands in a way that stays true to you and your profession. Hello, Juliet. Great to have you as a guest. Um, You've had such an interesting career today and certainly not what you'd expect from a dietetics degree. Um, Before you became a freelance consultant, you had a very successful career in the media with your role as editor at Top Santé it's not the traditional dietetic career path. So can you tell us a little bit about how long you've been a consultant for and how it came about? Yeah, sure. Hi,
1: Rosie. Um, Thanks ever so much for asking me to do this. Um, I'm really excited to actually be here and to share some of uh, my career, really, and how I got into working with media and also consulting with lots of brands. So you're absolutely right. I mean, yes, I didn't have the traditional um, career that you'd expect from training to be a dietitian. Um, My pathway um, into media in itself was quite interesting. So I did um, an 18-month stint at... um, guys hospital as a trained dietitian then moved into the food industry and worked for a few years um, at the dairy council so that was more of a food um, and nutrition uh, role in terms of promoting sort of dairy products within the context of a healthy diet and then i moved into media then so i became associate editor and then deputy editor and then editor Um, at Slimming Magazine. I was there for five years and then became, as you said, editor of Top Sante. So that role was uh, just an absolutely amazing, amazing time um, of, of my career, really. And actually, I look back on it and I think, how incredible is it that a dietitian was actually providing Evidence-based nutrition advice, and in in charge of a magazine which actually sold a huge number of magazines. So um, on average, we sold about one hundred and eighty thousand copies every month. I think one January we actually managed to hit over three hundred thousand, which was extraordinary. Um, and it was a dietitian, so a lot of the um, information in there, particularly everything related to nutrition, you you knew it was credible and resourced really really well. Um, in terms of uh, the my shift really from being an editor into the freelance consultancy world well I'd had eight years on magazines so I had a jam-packed book full of um, contacts with PRs I'd done lots of media interviews over the time so magazines often do surveys and studies or they want somebody from a magazine on um, popular chat programs so things like um, this morning or Lorraine or Richard and Judy's was on back then Um, so I was quite often doing media interviews had lots of contacts with PRs um, and I was increasingly being asked actually if I'd like to do any freelance work so it made it really easy for me to make make that kind of plunge into the freelance world it was scary don't get me wrong Um, I kind of started at a time when not many dietitians were freelancing Um, I didn't really have a clue what I was doing to be perfectly honest so I fumbled my way through the first year um, before I left Opsante I had quite a few um, pieces of work signed up and lined up so one of my first jobs was actually writing a, a brochure for a foot care company um, so not anything to do with nutrition but um, it was my first job and probably my only job actually that I, where I didn't actually have any nutrition input at all <laughs> um, but yes yeah, so quickly the commission started coming in, um, I started uh, getting the PR work as well as the writing work. And that's really how it happened. Um, And I I was quite lucky because I think back in those days, um, work did tend to land in my lap, so to speak. And I think it's very, very different now. So that was back in 2003. Um, fast forward 17 years and things are very different I wouldn't want to give anyone the impression that it's easy now to to get work Um, I think you have to work really hard for it myself included with all this experience you know you still have to put yourself forward for jobs they don't just happen um, like they used to perhaps so that's really
0: how I got into this position where I am now and doing this amazing podcast for you. (laughs) Oh, that sounds amazing. And I think there's many nutritionists and dietitians out there who maybe have their own private clinical practice. So they're seeing patients one on one um, and are technically freelance in that sense. But in this case, we're talking about being a consultant to brands and companies who are looking for nutritional support, um, either internally for product development or to communicate their message externally. Um, so for you, what are the benefits of becoming a consultant to brands over and above having your own clinical practice um, where you see patients one on one?
1: Yeah, I think for me, um, I was always into the health promotion aspect. So I know that when I was working at Guy's, it was very much um, dealing and and working with um Clients and patients on a one-to-one basis and helping them with, you know, conditions such as obesity, constipation, heart health um, information. And I did enjoy that, but I really always felt that I would rather get to a much bigger audience, I suppose, and to stop people getting sick in the first place. And it I always struck me. When I was doing my degree, I just remember this one couple of lines, and I can't even remember who told it to me, whether it was kind of a lecturer or whether we discussed it or we'd seen it in a book, but it always resonated with me. And it was basically um, the line that the NHS is really, if you if you liken the NHS to a fast-flowing river, um, the or people to a fast-flowing river, the NHS was very good at kind of picking people up out at the bottom of this river, but wasn't very good at stopping throwing themselves in in the first place. And it was really an analogy for kind of health promotion. Let's stop people kind of getting sick in the first place so that we actually have to do less at the end and and pick them out and, and help make them better. Um, now, of course, health promotion is much uh, is is massive now within kind of like the healthcare system, and you know hospitals are doing a very good job, and primary care settings doing an amazing job at health promotion. Back then, it perhaps wasn't as prevalent as it is now, um, and we're talking kind of like the late '80s here, so we are talking a long time ago. Um, and really, I just wanted to work more in health promotion. I can remember as a basic grade dietitian. Um, at Guy's Hospital, just thinking, oh, I'd love a health promo job to come up. I'd really love it, and that job didn't come up. And in fact, what did come up was the Dairy Council, which was really about kind of producing materials for practice nurses, health visitors, um, teachers. Basically, a role where all of the good nutrition information was being disseminated to health professionals so they could carry it on to their their clients or patients or students. So it was just really kind of like the perfect. Um, match for me moving into health promotion. And I think now, you know, as a consultant, um, it means I've got huge amounts of opportunity to disseminate healthy eating and good diet information to a wide variety of people to stop them getting ill. So for example, if you're working with brands um, and the media, you have the you're ideally placed to do that so whether you're working kind of writing a feature for a a tabloid newspaper or a magazine whether you're working with brands like the almond board for example you know you have huge amounts of opportunity to give great nutrition information um, and to help customers clients consumers whoever you're talking to really to sort of like improve their diets overall so it's a real health promotion role that I feel that I work in a lot of the time.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think um, you mentioned there about some of the work you do with with the different brands. And can you explain the different ways that you can be a consultant and the different things that you can offer brands? Oh, Rosie, how long have you got? I could talk about this for hours and hours and hours.
1: Um, I'll try and keep it succinct, but there's absolutely loads of ways that you can work with different brands. Um, And that's really what makes the job so exciting because there's no kind of like, you know, no one day is exactly the same um so where do you start so i suppose the first thing is that you can work in an advisory role or an advisory capacity so that could be updating on updating a client on where you are within the nutrition world um, so it could be providing information on the latest government guidance it could be looking at kind of like calorie fat salt reduction targets for example it could be bringing up clients and um, bringing clients up to speed on scientific studies um, so a good example here might be so um, I think it was last year actually the second committee put out a report on saturated fat and diet um, so it would be briefing the almond board for example on any relevant parts which might affect their brand so that would be a good example Um, another example this week I've been advising clients on the up-and-coming HFSS online online, um, proposed ban of uh, HFSS products so you know it's a real update and advisory capacity um, that you can offer so that's the first thing um, I think the next thing is really kind of like being on the ball and advising clients about what might be up and coming. So, what are going to be the big trends? Um, what's the media interest? How will it impact on your um, on 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 your client's business, for example? And I think you have to bear in mind here that kind of you know what's necessarily. The media's interest might not necessarily be public health England's interest or dietician's interest. So a good example here might be, uh, I'm just trying to think, additives might be, you know, it's a, often getting huge amounts of media coverage, but actually probably not that great a priority for for public health um, in terms of of where you go with messaging. Um, And another great example would be um, the increased interest that we've had in sugary snacks. So, for example, it could be Okay, you know, I could advise a client saying, well, we've got this new report coming out from a pressure group, for example. It's going to be focusing on sugary snacks, which then gives your client an opportunity. So the Almond Board, for example, would have an opportunity to talk about healthy snacking um, on reduced sugar snacks, snacks which contain no sugar. So there's the kind of like the, um, the media interest in advising on what's coming up. Of course, you have troubleshooting. That's always a part of the job. Um, So um, if there's any potential things with your product that uh, might be looked at unfavorably, particularly in in the current climates, for example, Um, the PR activities. And these I always find are the really, really fun bits. So. Um, Clients might have a new product that they actually want to launch um, and they might want to support the promotion of that. So if there's a nutritional angle, they might want to support the promotion of that. Um, So really, you could be doing anything for the PR side. It could be writing copy for websites. So I'm just doing a load of that this week as well. Writing copy work for websites could be providing quotes for press releases. It could be doing Q&As or fighting um, myths or providing facts whether that's for a press pack it could be for online so you could be doing sound bites for um, any of the social channels for example um, it could be actually writing the press release so there's that element and you could also be doing things like advising on on surveys or studies and helping come up with angles for um, promoting a product you've got more traditional um, media things so doing interviews so you could be doing briefings um you could be doing one-to-ones with journalists you could be doing not so much at the moment but kind of um you could be going into a room with kind of 10 15 20 journalists and and talking about the new product um, and you could be doing media round tables so in the past i've done lots of those um, we've not had quite so many of them recently obviously with the current situation But, you know, you could either be hosting or you could be um, attending on behalf of a client. So sitting in a room and discussing, it could be the media roundtables, it could be with media, it could be with influencers, it could be with media medics. So I think there's all those elements um, of the the media side, which is such a great part. And then... (sighs) Again, increasingly, what I'm doing a lot of these days is advising clients on what they can and can't say about their product, and this is a really, really big area actually, because we've got lots of um, legislation in place, which um, the nutrition and health claims legislation, which basically advises on what ca- what products can and can't say and what claims they can't make, and it's an, it's increasingly an important area. I mean, I've had all sorts. of of kind of weird and wonderful um, requests over the years. You know, this is what we want to say about our product. So, for example, you know, clients wanting to say things quite, you know, I can understand why loaded with antioxidants. You know, sorry, but you can't claim that. Um, low in carbs, you can't claim that. But also some more kind of like extreme ones. So, you know, this product helps to prevent asthma. Definitely not. This water is better for you if you're pregnant. 100% not. Um, so, really, it's an example of my role where I can actually say to a client, I'm, you know, yes, you might want to say this. You can't say that it's not legal, but then rather than just leaving it there as a as a consultant, my role is really then turning it around and saying, actually, this is what you can say um, and trying to find an angle, a route that they might actually... Uh, you know, that they can say, so rather than talking about a product that's loaded with antioxidants, for example, or eat this and you won't get a heart attack. And, you know, trust me, clients sometimes do want to say these sorts of things. I can then turn it around into a claim that's legal and actually will have a lot more resonance. So, for example, replacing saturated fats with unsaturated fats in the diet has been shown to help lower or reduce blood cholesterol. So, you know, it's really kind of helping clients to understand what they can't and can't say that's just the tip of the iceberg Rosie I mean there's so much more I could tell you but I think we'll leave it there because (laughs)
0: otherwise the whole podcast will end up on just that section (laughs) yeah no thank you so much for that overview and I think it's really interesting that you mentioned around the EU health claims as well being very much part of your Your role as a consultant because we we're discussing that on another podcast episode um in detail as well so um people can upskill on that um but as a health professional when you're kind of you're obviously getting all these offers as you mentioned you get some clients that come to you that want to say certain things how do you how do you decide who you want to consult for and you know what should you look for in a company that you consult for yeah great question
1: and i think you know um you should always actually um, show some integrity, I guess, as to who you choose to work with and not always feel that you have to work for a company, even if, you know, if you don't feel that they're the right fit for you. So in terms of um, the work that I do, I mean, I think, first of all, it's just brilliant to work for for super lovely, healthy products. So almonds, for example, is a, is a really, really um great fit for what I believe in Um, you know you want to be looking for companies like the almond board for example that um, really sort of value the science behind their product and and behind the nutrition for their product Um, so companies like the almond board which actually fund huge amounts of research they work with researchers to come up with um, really great research on nutritional benefits and really that means it makes it very easy for me to communicate messages that are based on evidence um, and science rather than just sort of hearsay so i think the first point really is you know find the you know if you can work with a with a, a product that's got lots of lovely health credentials to start with then you're, you're on to a winner Um, I think also, you know, coming back to those nutrition and health claims, it's much, much easier for me. I like to work with clients who um, work within the boundaries of legislation within, you know, they work within the EU nutrition and health claims. Um, So the Almond Board, a very good example of that. They're very hot on it, actually. Very, very hot. You can't get away with anything (laughs) with, with them. So you have to kind of like make sure that everything you're saying is fully and utterly in line with legislation. Um, and I think, you know, bear in mind as well, a lot of the smaller companies may not um, necessarily be aware of some of the nutrition claims um, that they can and can't make. So I think, you know, that that role in the advisory, you can help them. I've worked with clients before who've started off going, we want to say this. I've said, sorry, you can't. But actually, they've come up with really, really great um great angles Um, so i think you know it's that willingness working with clients who are willing to take on board what you're saying and go with what you say and actually take your information um, on board to help promote their product i think you also have to think you know are you happy to work with the brand do you like the brand and i know that sounds a bit daft but You know, I think it's really hard to be passionate about a brand if you've got no real interest in it, if it's not something that you actually enjoy eating or that you wouldn't buy. I think, you know, or a good test of it is would you recommend this product personally to your mum or your best friend or your. Or, or give it to your child you know if it's it's one of those i think think very carefully um it would have been virtually impossible for me to work for the dairy council if i didn't like cheese or yogurt for example it would be impossible for me to work for the almond board if i didn't like almonds um and i think that helps to give you a passion for the product that you're actually working working with um and I think it becomes an integral part, you know, if it's already an integral part of your diet or your your, your own personal, what you talk about anyway, it just gives you that added edge, I think, you know, um, when it comes to talking about products and working with clients for those products. In terms of products that you think might be a little bit controversial, I mean, there's huge amounts of products out there, aren't there? And there's some that... Um, you know, have a less than healthy image and you might be approached to work with those. And I think you have to think to yourself, um, is that something I want to be associated with? And if it's not, then don't be afraid to say, no, actually, this isn't right for me. Because, you know, bear in mind, there will be somebody who will be quite happy to work with that that product and I I tend to have a bit of a golden rule I think I've learned it's taken me a good 17 years to look well perhaps not quite that long but you know I now know if I feel that I have to call up a colleague and say would you work with this product the very fact that I'm questioning it and having to ask somebody else means it's probably not quite right for me Um, so I tend to go far more with my gut instinct now so if I get approached to work with a client and then I'm phoning a colleague going, I'm not sure about this. What do you think? For me, that's the warning sign. I don't really need to even make that call anymore now. I kind of think, OK, the fact that I'm thinking about it is enough. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I think those are the kind of
0: things that you really need to look for. Yeah, amazing. Thank you. And I think those were super helpful tips um, and ways to keep you kind of grounded and, and guided with what you do. Um, and I think you kind of mentioned there towards the end about the more controversial um, brands, and I think criticism is something that's a really hard one to deal with, um, especially when you're starting out. Having that kind of thick skin and understanding that you know what, sometimes people aren't going to like or agree with what you're doing, um, and I've experienced that a bit in the past um, with with some of my previous roles. Um, but you know, I always think it's always better to have nutritionists and dieticians on board and supporting and helping those brands to improve uh, or those products to improve.
1: Than not at all yeah you're absolutely right rosie and i think you know we've all uh anyone who's working in this business has probably had um criticism from some group or some person over over the years as if they've worked with a particular product. Um, I think it's great. I think the first thing to say is things have changed hugely um, in the last couple of decades. So I think, you know, there used to be when I, in back in the eighties, and again, you know, this is, I feel like a dinosaur talking to you about this, but you know, back in the eighties, when there were very few people working in industry, there was this view that if you were working with a big kind of like food brand, you'd sold out, you know, you weren't sticking to your roots. Um, but today, I think whatever the product is, it's absolutely essential that there is a nutritionist or a registered dietitian working with that product. Um, If you don't have so even if you take some of the products which often come under criticism. So let's take the example of soft drinks or chocolate bars. Pretty good examples there. um, You still need to have dietitians, nutritionists on board in order to drive change, because actually, if you don't have a nutritionist or dietitian there, who is going to help um, improve kind of the overall nutrition and of course that could be in terms of reformulation it could be working with teams to look at portion sizes it could be looking at promotions and opportunities there Um, and if you've got a dietitian working behind the scenes they can um work with the NPD to help improve nutritionals and they can work with marketing teams to help improve promotion messages so promoting healthier products for all the healthier options for example and I think a really great example actually of this is something that I worked on years and years ago um, and it was about it was producing a product um, and the product comes out and it's got quite a lot of saturated fat in it. From a public health point of view, that's not great. We don't want people to be buying products with huge amounts of saturated fat. And, you know, with my input and my help, the product went from around 10 grams of saturated fat to two grams of saturated, uh, sorry, to eight grams of saturated fat, a saving a reduction of two grams. Now, this was behind the scenes work. Nobody ever knew about this. And in essence, the product that that was launched still had a red traffic light it was still eight grams of, of saturated fats, um, in there. So it's still high, but the product that there was originally planned had 10 grams in now, a two grams saturated fat saving might not sound a huge amount, but actually when you've got a product that is selling millions over the course of the year, that is a vast saving of saturated fat in total. Um, and, that has a very big impact on public health actually. So without that dietitian input, actually the nation could have had a whole lot more saturated fat. And yet it's working with a product that isn't, you know, that's not getting a green traffic light for absolutely everything. So it's just an example of how I think, you know, it's essential that we have dietitians, registered um, nutritionists working within the with with brands and with companies and consulting to help, you know, help drive change within the right direction for for um, healthier eating.
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And um, I think there's one of the things that I think a lot of people probably want to branch out and do more consultancy work. It's, you know, as we spoke about, it's very varied and, and there's some really, really um, great points to it. Have you got any advice for anyone that's thinking of starting out and how to actually get the work because I know you mentioned before that you know when you first started out it was it was probably a bit easier than it is now
1: yeah I mean there's lots of things that you can do I think um be confident and actually reach out to brands so don't shy away if you think um you see a brand and you think actually that's quite a good fit for me um or that's something I'd be really interested in or that's a product that I really enjoy eating or working with then reach out to whoever it is and suggest you know put forward a list of what you could actually do to to help them um and that's actually how I got one of my very big clients back in 2005 I kind of emailed about um I was writing a media feature actually and I emailed about the um, nutrition information, and then said, "By the way, have you ever, you know, are you interested in working with a nutritionist in the UK at all?" Um, and they emailed me back a week later and said, "Yeah, we'd love to work with you." I think I sent my CV as well. Um, and that's uh, been a kind of like a 15-year relationship now, which is just amazing. Um, now I don't think it would be quite that easy these days. And in fact, even with that client now, you just kind of you know there's all sorts of contracts involved and various things. But I think the the main point is, you know, if there's something that you think, wow, that would be great to work on, then do send off, um, a, whiz off an email with a list of what you could potentially offer. Um, I think obviously have your CV updated, ready to go. That goes without saying. I think that's the same for any job. Um, I think it's probably quite helpful if you've got a list in place of the things and activities that you could be involved in with examples so that you don't have to keep writing the same thing, You know, so it just needs to be a Word document on your computer, which is kind of bullet pointed. These are all the things that I could do. And then you can adapt it for various people that you contact. Um, I think, you know, try and make things topical. So, for example, what's a good example here? Probably if you're pitching to someone in the height of summer, supplements for vitamin D might not be, as an example, one of the kind of like that topical. However, um, you know, that's going to be far more topical come autumn, winter time. So, try and look at uh, the, the seasonality uh, of things. And also what the current nutrition climate is. So if all the focus is on sugar, for example, um, it can go one of two ways, actually, because, you know, there's that, there is that thing. If, if everyone's talking about sugar, actually, there might be people looking for different angles in different areas, kind of like to provide a bit more balance. Um, but just keep an eye on what's going on in the current nutrition climate and also be very aware of trends um look at what's likely to come up now of course none of us you know have a crystal ball we can't see into the future but you can kind of guess have a pretty good indication of where things might be going um and if you see anything which looks like it's potentially um quite new and interesting don't be afraid to kind of think okay that's an area which could be up and coming even if it doesn't you know you've got nothing to lose so Brands always need to be on the ball. They're always looking for a new angle. So it's really just kind of being on top of your game, really, and knowing what's going on out there in the the world. And none of us are going to know absolutely everything. Every day is a learning day. So I think um, it's just really being um, able to have some ideas and, and also just making contacts. So, I mean, that's the other thing you might make contact and there might not be anything at that particular moment that a client is wants help with. But, you know, they can keep your CV on file, your details on file. And if anything comes up in the future, you know, they might think a light bulb moment. I oh, actually I remember talking to so and so about that. So. I think that's probably my best advice there on on what you can do to start out.
0: Yeah, and I think so. When you're emailing out to potential clients, um, you mentioned there about kind of offering what you can do for them. Is what what skills are clients looking for?
1: Well, I think being properly qualified um, is. Obviously, very, very helpful. We have a huge amount of influencers out there now and so called uh, diet gurus, diet experts, um, actually, who don't have any qualifications. So I think the first thing to do is really push the fact that you're properly qualified, that you've got a degree in nutrition, a degree in dietetics, whatever your qualification is. Um, I find it nothing more frustrating than having a press release that pictures up on my desk and it's expert nutritionist and qualified so-and-so and and then I look into their qualifications and they've done a a two-week course um in alternative nutrition for example um it frustrates me greatly and I'm sure there are many uh, qualified dietitians and nutritionists out there who will feel the same um I think so that the qualification is important um and will uh, you know in my experience big brands will always want to work with somebody who is qualified and actually increasingly we're seeing the smaller brands now because of course don't forget the smaller brands they've doesn't matter the size whatever the size of the brand um they still have to follow the same legislation and they still have to provide you know decent proper nutrition information um so i think you know it, it's one of those things that increasingly we're seeing qualified people working with um brands now which is great news um i think you need to be very good at taking the the science and translating it into um easy speaks um for a variety of different audiences and you need to be able to adapt the messaging so when you're working um with Clients, I think you have to remember that you're dealing with a huge range of different people. So you might be talking direct to the consumer in terms of, uh, of um, copy, for example, on a website or in a quote. You could be talking to health professionals, media medics. You could be talking to marketing people. You could be talking to um Research and development team. Um, so you really need to be able to adapt how you speak to a wide variety of, of people because you mess the way you speak to a consumer isn't going to be the same as the way you would speak to a doctor, for example. Um, I think the same if you're writing, then you know you have to look at the style of, of writing um, for who whom you're um, putting copy together for. So if you're writing for weekly magazine it's going to be very different to perhaps how you would write for a sunday broadsheet just as an example um so i think um you, you need to have that kind of ability to translate messages, science into to different groups of people. So it's the same message fundamentally, um, but just presented slightly differently. And I think you need that adaptability. So I wrote a list this week, actually, before doing this of all the things that I've done. And I think this week it has been a particularly challenging week because I've gone from doing uh, recipe analysis through to complete rewrite of of a website for a food client through to sitting in a three and a half hour um, marketing meeting and a planning meeting for another client through to writing my regular food pages to writing a feature on healthy snacking um, to doing a podcast, so you know there's, there's the adaptability. You can't underestimate how you need to be able to literally switch from one thing to another very, very quickly, often within the same day, within the same couple of hours. Um, and I think one of the other points, actually, with working with clients is you do need to you you do need to be um, able to drop everything from time to time. Um, and I always I always laugh because I have one client and I look at my clock. It's four o'clock on a Friday every single. <laughs> i was like if there's ever going to be a crisis it's always going to be at four o'clock on a friday afternoon um and then you're busy writing frantically at seven eight o'clock on a friday evening to try and get everything sorted but you know you do you there will be times when you need to drop everything and just deal with uh, a problem so um time management goes out of the window for those few hours and then you have to make up what you were supposed to be doing too um In terms of writing, I think, you know, you need to be able to write um, quickly and concisely um, and try and stick to your word counts. That's a challenge, I think. Um, It's still a challenge for me because the the reality is, as as nutritionists, we have so much information that we want to tell people um, and we want to tell them every single bit of it. But the truth is, when you've got a thousand word word count, you can't tell them everything. Um, So you need to find that balance between what you want people to know and what they want to know. And quite often the two things don't always match up. (laughs) So, um, you know, you really have to kind of find that careful balance to make sure that everybody is happy, I guess, and um, that you're presenting good information in a package that, you know, that your end user wants to, wants to see or read or know about.
0: Yeah. And, um, you know, you've, you've said before that you've been working with some of the brands, some of the clients that you have for, for a really long time and including the almond board. Um, what's your advice for people, um, to get off on the right foot with building a good relationship with a, with a client?
1: Well, I think one of the things, I mean, we've already discussed it, a passion for the the product that you're working with um, or the brand that you're working with. So you really need to believe in that product Um, that will come through in every single piece of work that you do, Um, whether you're writing something for them, whether you're talking to people, whether you're in meetings with people. So, you know, that passion, I think, is really important. And you can't fake that, you know you can't fake, um, a passion for something if you haven't got it. So, you know, that's, that's a great starting point. And I think that comes back to one of the previous questions. If you don't feel passionate about it to start with, there's probably no, no point actually taking that work on in the first place. If you kind of feel a bit ambivalent towards it in the beginning going, oh, I could take it or leave it probably leave it. That would be my advice to you. Um, And, you know, that passion will help you and keep you working with brands for a long time as a general rule, providing you're you're doing a good job as well. Passion alone won't get you through. Um, I think you also have to have this general awareness of of what's important for a brand. Um, And sometimes you need to think beyond just the obvious points. Um, I'm just trying to think of an example here. But um, I suppose if you kind of, when you think about anything that I see about almonds as a good example, um, whether it's on a TV programme, whether it's a TV advert, whether it's an ad I see on on, um, social, whether it's a a new paper that's come out, a new scientific paper that's talking about um, nuts in general... um, I'll make sure that you guys know about it, see a copy of it um, so that kind of you're kept on, on the ball. And I think that comes back down. If you've got this passion, then it always sends a little message to your brain going, oh, there's something about almonds there. So I'll make sure that they see that. And I I do kind of find, I mean, you'll know Rosie more than anyone. I send little messages going, sure, you've seen this, but just in case you haven't. And and actually, sometimes you do come back going, oh, no, I didn't know about that. So it's that kind of like always thinking of the product. Um, And I don't think this is something that's necessarily conscious. It's just something which is always in the back of your mind thinking, oh, I must make a note of that and send that off. Um, Whenever I write anything, I think that's the other thing. You know, I always try and include... Um, mention of the products that I that I kind of you know work with and again that's not necessarily always conscious that's because they're kind of I've I've worked with with products for a long time so um, and it's of course it's very easy when you're talking about nuts for example you know it's a great it's a very good example of when you're working with lovely generic type of brands like almonds that you can incorporate the them very easily into things that you're doing I think. You know, I mentioned earlier, passion is, is part of it, but you also have to provide a good service. Um, at the end of the day, your clients are customers and we all know what's. if you go into a shop and you buy something and you're not happy, you either send it back or you say that you're never going to shop there again. And it's exactly the same. I think when you're working with clients, you know, you have your um, if you submit something and the client isn't happy. They're not going to choose you again. They're not going to work with you again. Um, It's really that simple. So I think, you know, for me, good service, you need to respond quickly. You need to work to deadlines. You need to have regular communication and good relationships with the people that you work with, good people skills. And I think there's nothing special particularly about that. That's the same with any job. Um, but I think, you know, that regular communication is important. So um, I think always make sure that you know what the deadline is. So some clients will send something over and you don't always get a deadline on it. Now, sometimes you can respond quickly. But if you if you're really stacked with work, you know, you can email back and just say, when do you need this for? Um so that you're all kind of clear on where you're going. I think one of the problems that you have sometimes is if, if, if there's kind of, if you're not clear about, um, things, that's when problems start. So I think, you know, being transparent, being open, saying, look, I'm really hectic this week. Can I get it to you next week? And most clients, unless it's really urgent, will say, yeah, that's absolutely fine. So it's keeping the communication open, but you do have to go do a good job. Um, I think another thing in terms of uh, building a good working relationship is it's very helpful to, and and essential actually, not just helpful, but it's essential to know what your client's key messages are. What are the key points they want to make? Um, And bear in mind that that may change from year to year. So different strategies, different marketing um, routes will mean that kind of what's a a strong message for one Financial year might not necessarily be a strong um, message for the next year. So, keeping up to date with what the key messages are for smaller companies, you might actually have to help with the creation of these key messages um, and helping clients understand what's coming up so that they can change their key messaging if necessary. And then, I think finally, it's really about being reliable and consistent. and having that knowledge and understanding of your client and what they, their needs are. Now, obviously, that's a that's you learn that over time. You don't go straight in going, "I understand your needs." It's it's really something that you learn over time of working with with um, people. But um, that reliability and that consistency will help you through. Um, and I think if you've you know the ultimate point to sum up, I suppose. Is to think how your client thinks. Um, you know, your client will always have their the best interest of their product at heart and want to stop anything from damaging it. So if you think in that same way, you know, what would the what is the absolute best for this product? Um, I think that will help you go a long way with working with clients. Yeah,
0: thank you so much. Um, and I think I'm sure there's no magic answer to this question, but um obviously when you work with brands there are contracts involved and you you mentioned that a bit a minute ago um but what's your advice with regards to kind of setting your fees and managing contracts all that kind of nitty-gritty stuff that people don't really want to talk about
1: oh I know you can see me that I'm smiling um (laughs) fees oh goodness what a what a difficult one that is um right so there is no set fee um it's not like working within the NHS where you've got your bands and you have um, set fees. It's a bit of a free for all, to be perfectly honest. Um, and it's difficult to know what to advise. Um, I think most of the time it's a good case of negotiating. I think it's quite helpful if you set your fees out Um for a variety of different activities. So, for example, I have a rate for an hour, for a half day, for a full day, and then I've got set fees for activities like recipe analysis. So how much I would charge per recipe, um, how much I would charge for the provision of a quote, for example, for a press release. Um, It could be helpful to set an amount for, um, say, a thousand words of copy. And you might want to change that, you know, it might be a thousand words of copy for a magazine. Um, Although, to be fair, most magazines will have their set fee and there'll be no budging on that. Um, And uh, you might want to have kind of, you know, a set fee for doing an Instagram post or a Twitter post, for example. So set out what you what you think. Um, Obviously, ask clients what their budgets are. Sometimes they won't tell you sometime before they've given you the word or you know, while you're in the negotiation process. I suppose it's the same with anything Go in a bit higher because it's easier to drop. If you go in, you're not going to get more. So work on the theory that if you go in on X amount, um, it might be less than that. Um, but at least go in at a, a decent rate. And I think there is an element here, that, you know, don't go too low. I think it devalues the whole of the, the business, actually. I think it devalues the industry if you've got... Um, know values of of which are really really quite low and also if you start charging very low amounts then there's an expectation from clients they'll go to other people and expect those very low amounts and and that devalues you know the your qualification experience and the work that you've actually um are able to do um i think you also have to remember that whatever you set as a fee at the start you've set the precedent So, again, don't go too low because otherwise you'll be stuck on that for a very, very long time. Um, And I would suggest that, so for example, um, you might want to put a KVAT in if you are going to go low. So, for example, if you're writing a magazine feature and they say, oh, we've only got this amount of money and you're desperate to write that feature, you can say, okay, well, I'll do it on this occasion, but actually, after this feature, anything else you want me to write will be at this amount. Um, And I think that could can possibly um help you so that you're not going in low and then staying low. As I say, magazines and newspapers tend to have set fees and they they rarely budge from them. Um, It's always worth asking the question, you know, occasionally I go, Kai's, this is really low. You know that my copy's good. Can you give me a bit more? And sometimes they do. So so it's uh you know if you don't ask you don't get and I think as long as you're doing it nicely then um you know there's no harm in asking is there? Um, I think ask friends, colleagues, how much they're charging, a few trusted colleagues. um, If they're happy to talk about it, that can be helpful. Um, It would be great if we could get some professional guidance. So, for example, if the British Dietetic Association could actually give us some guidance on freelance fees for different kind of activities and also different levels of experience, that would be helpful. But we don't have that at the moment, but we can hope. In terms of contracts well I mean I know it's standard but you really do always need to read the small print um, and you will find all sorts of weird and wonderful things usually in the small print when you read it carefully. I think the main thing for me is make sure that you're clear about um, how long you are tied to a contract or how long you're tied to a, a client um, and also you um, how you know where your if your name or your picture is being used where that's being used where you're going to be pictured and also the other important thing is to look at what the um, there's usually kind of we don't want you to work for x y or z brands within that contract as well and i think that's where you have to think carefully if you're being offered two days work and it means that you've got a whole year in the contract where you can't then work for a competitor brand or a competitor product you have to think, well, actually, am I cutting off my nose to spite my face on that? So that's where you've got the opportunity to negotiate and say, look, come on, let's make it two months, for example, rather than a year. So just to be aware of that um, and also expect that some of the um, some of the brands that you might not be able to work with might not be as obvious as as you might think. Um, you know, so you do need to read that small print carefully. Um, so, yes, just be, a you know, be be a conscious of what's in there and don't be afraid to go back and ask if you could have a few things changed um as long as you're up honest as long as you're up front um and as long as you're not losing any of your integrity then i think you know you you can't really go wrong just stick to your kind of guns and in my experience most clients are happy to make changes to the contract if if um you know if you're not asking for anything outrageous or just wanting clarity on a few points
0: yeah yeah absolutely it's it's a two-way thing isn't it um, and just kind of spurred on that question of I'm sure a lot of people are wondering if you've had any kind of disputes or had to resolve any conflicts whilst working as a as a freelancer um, is there anything that you've kind of done to deal with that? Um, fortunately not with any of my
1: uh, client work um, I remember years and years ago um, working in magazines I've I, were I wrote um two new year weight loss plans um in well, it was for January issues for two different magazines and one was a health magazine one was for a um woman's magazine, monthly women's magazine. And they were completely different diet plans. You know, I never just copy and paste. It's kind of, you know, it's a, there were two completely separate diet plans, but both went out with, um, a very similar kind of like cover line, which was basically lose weight for the new year <laughs> along those lines. And one of the, I forget which way around it was, it was such a long time ago, but one of the, um, magazines wasn't very happy at the fact that I'd got, a. Uh, feature in another magazine which to be honest they weren't competing titles and I did stand my ground a bit and say look you know these these this is not a competing title it's the health market versus the woman's market which uh I suppose I could see their point but you know if I hadn't written it someone else would have it would have still happened (laughs) it was two completely different diet plans and it was absolutely fine there was also no contractual I had no contract there to say I couldn't write another diet plan for another magazine so It was all a bit of a storm in a teacup. It was fine. Um, But now I just out of courtesy, I think the lesson I learned from that is now if I get asked to do two similar pieces of work to come out at similar times, I usually just drop an email saying I'm I'm doing something similar for another title. Are you okay with this? And actually, I've probably done that a handful of times over the years. And everyone's always said, yeah, it's absolutely fine as long as it's a separate plan. (laughs) So again but it's that it does make you really stressed I mean I I can't you know I felt really anxious and worried about it and I was upset you know in that kind of oh, because you I think if you're proud of what you do you never want to upset anyone do you you never want to do a job and make somebody else feel that that's not on so I did feel really quite worried about it and I say it was years ago um but it was resolved um and it just makes you I think the thing We say it all the time, don't we? You know, it's just learn from any things that don't go quite to plan and look at what you could do. And I think the other thing is, don't necessarily think, oh, I can't ever do that. You just think, okay, so how can I still do that but make it better? So for me, that's kind of let's just let the other person know um, that it's coming up so that they're not surprised. And I think that's the, you know, don't let it put you off doing something similar in the future. Just look at how it could be handled slightly better or differently
0: yeah and you know those things they happen don't they it's just part of it and i think especially when you're freelance it can be quite quite daunting and and worrying because it's 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 your livelihood and it, it can affect it but um i think we, the advice you've given there is is brilliant um i think many of our listeners are probably wondering some of the things they need to do before they take the leap i know i i've recently taken um a leap into more freelance work um but what's your advice to someone who's looking to make that move and um, kind of the things they need to consider before they do it?
1: Um, OK, so I think resilience is important. You need to be quite resilient. And I think you said very early on, quite thick skinned, actually. Um, you you need to kind of prepare for the fact that not everyone will love what you're doing. Um So I think um, and, and that you're kind of as a freelancer, you're opening yourself up to criticism and you also don't have that kind of banter in the office where you can say, oh, for goodness sake, such and such happened today. You are on your own. So, you know, that resilience is really, really important. And and actually, I think, you know, I think when you set out. And actually, even when you're well-established, it doesn't take an awful lot to knock your confidence on something. You know, if someone criticises you. It depends what sort of person you are. But, you know, I know I used to get really, really worried. Um, one thing I would say is if you write a feature for a magazine, <laughs> don't read the comments online because that will really make you unhappy. I think I remember writing a feature for uh, The Mirror years ago and it was all about... Um, why we should continue to put carbs on the menu and I think you have to remember as well you know beyond what you write I mean this is slightly going off off track but it's it's an interesting lesson because you might be in your head you've written this lovely feature which is all about kind of like the health benefits of carbs and the words are absolutely fantastic but actually the illustration that was used was a massive, massive portion of chips and that really wasn't what the feature was about. The feature was really about the sensible, healthy eating, whole grain carbs, what's your portion sizes, all of the things that as registered nutritionists and dietitians, we say frequently, <laughs> illustrated with a portion of chips. So anyone who picks up the paper and sees that go, oh, you know, it's not ideal, but kind of you then get the criticism kind of coming through, not just on your words, but also in the images that are used. So I think that resilience and making sure that you don't read the comments because (laughs) it can make you really miserable and unhappy and question whether you whether you've written the right thing which of course we all know we have Um, i think being very organized is important so you you know i told you about my week so far so you need that organization and you also need to have good time management skills and be um, adaptable and prepared to drop everything if you need to Um, There is a certain element. I think it's certainly when I started out, um, it's a big change. I mean, more people will be used to this now because everyone's been working from home, but it is a big change kind of getting up and walking to a spare room in your house, as opposed to getting up and going out of the the house to a, a job. So, you know, you do need that motivation to actually get up, um, and treat your freelance job as exactly that, a job. Um, so that you you kind of don't waste your time I suppose um, it's potentially quite easy to sort of potter and not do very much um, but I think we're all far more used to working from home as I say when kind of lockdown happened it made no difference to me because I'd been on my own for kind of you know 17 years pretty much <laughs> working on at home I think it's really important to build a network of colleagues so um, I have a handful of people who if I've got something that I'm not sure of if I'm a bit confused about something if I could do with um, some advice I will kind of just pick up the phone and say actually what do you think about this Um, or have you heard of this or what do you what are your viewpoints um, it's always helpful to have that sounding board, board there. And also, I think, you know, whilst nobody ever wants to turn work down, I think it's quite handy to have, if you if you are absolutely stacked and you, you can't take anything else on, it is handy to be able to have someone you can recommend as well, um, a reliable kind of trusted colleague who you can recommend. And it works both ways then, you know, so they might well then recommend you for a piece of work. Um, So it's like having your own little network, I suppose, of freelancers as opposed to being in an office with your network of colleagues. Um, One of the big changes, of course, to freelancing is working um, on your own rather than with others. Um, So I think, you know, expect it to be a little bit isolating at first, which is why that network is really, really important. And I think what's really what's even more important is to make sure you have a space that you can cut off from for work. So I have a a separate office and I rarely go in there except to work. So, you know, if I'm doing fun stuff on my computer, if I'm putting a photo book together, for example, I do that out in the lounge. I don't do it in my office um, where this is my dedicated workspace. I come in here to do my 9 to 5 not so 9 to 5 but my my regular kind of nutrition work and everything else is done outside of this room and i think that can really help i think do be prepared for the fact you know holidays are a tricky one i usually let all my clients know that i'm going on holiday but inevitably i've done interviews had conversations had work calls lying on a beach in a hot sunny place wandering around a castle in the middle of you know europe somewhere you will always as a freelancer you are on call Um, with clients you know most of the time and clients do respect they say you're on holiday okay we're not going to call you but if there's some sort of crisis that they need help with then they will um, call you so I think you know just expect that and as long as you expect you you know you expect that it, it helps and it never irritates me it never bothers me it's kind of it's just one of those things emails try and switch off uh, impossible to do um i think probably it doesn't really matter whether you're freelance or whether you're an employer you know working with a, a, a you know full-time job with a company we're looking at our emails all the time aren't we but if you can try and cut off um in the evenings and weekends it is helpful but i know that often doesn't happen <laughs> We always want to reply instantly, don't we? <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, we do. But thank you so much. I think those tips were were so handy. And I think especially finding um, a space. I mean, I've recently moved into a place um, so I can have a, an office and, and shut that away. And it has been so helpful. Um, and like you said, that sounding board. Uh, I have a few friends that I ring up and they probably hate it actually I ring them up and kind of oh is this okay am I doing the right thing um but it's yeah it's so so valuable to have that um thank you so much for talking to us today um I enjoyed it as always um and I really hope our listeners found it as as useful and interesting as i did um, to finish off i'd like to ask you a couple of general questions um, so the first one is kind of a bit of a career one a bit of a personal one can be taken in either way um, but what's the best advice you've ever been given
1: oh good question
0: um I suppose one of the
1: uh, best lessons I ever really learned about um, was back in my hospital days. And I spent a good kind of like I went to I went to see a patient who was newly diagnosed with um, diabetes and they were an inpatient um, on one of the wards. And I can remember sort of like spending absolutely ages going through telling them how they should reduce the sugar in their diet and advising them. Um, on the best ways to do this I think I I must have done a diet diary Um, but at the end of it all he turned around and he said "Um, why do I need to cut down on sugar is it bad for me so so I remember you know the, the lesson there is never assume knowledge Um, And I think, you know, linking into that, my old editor at Slimming Magazine, she was absolutely brilliant, actually, because one of the things that she said to me was always spell out what you mean and give the reasons for it. So, you know, you can talk about saturated fat or you can talk about antioxidants, but actually you need to tell people what they are and why we need them. In the first instance, you can't just assume people will know those things. And the other lesson that she always, um, she said to me that I still think about now, every time I write the word, I take it out. She says, don't tell people. She, I still picture her now. We were sat at her desk and I just, it was my, I'd only probably been there a few months. And so this was my assessment of my kind of newfound writing skills. And she just sat there and she, there was a pen on the table and she said, pick up that pen. And I picked it up and she said, try and pick up that pen. And so I picked it up and she said, never tell people to try and do something if it's easy for them to do, just tell them to do it. And uh, so it's it's really helped because when I write my copy now, I never tell people to try and eat more healthily. I just tell them to do it. You know, don't try and cut out crisps, just cut out crisps. Sorry, that's not a good example. <laughs> you know, it's just kind of it's, it's that kind of don't tell people to try and do things if they can do it. You know, be positive, proactive and really. Um, you give people the option she I can remember her saying to me if you tell people to try and do something they can say well I tried to do it but it didn't work um so it's probably a bit harsh but actually it's always stuck with me
0: (laughs) oh thank you um and I guess kind of building on that a bit uh what's the most valuable tool to have as a freelance nutritionist or dietitian
1: oh we've covered this in depth but I think without question resilience and adaptability um the great colleagues that you can have to bounce ideas off and I think the other thing I'd be completely and utterly lost without my nutrition analysis program. Um, I think having to go back to doing all the nutrition calculations for recipes using the book and a ruler and a pen, which I'm sure most people listening to this won't even remember, but there was the day when we had a book with a pen and a and uh, a ruler that we used to have to <laughs> have to use to analyze our recipes. <laughs> but yeah, my nutrition analysis program, I think,
0: Yeah that that sounds painstaking. (laughs) (laughs) I know you're too young to remember but yes
1: it was painstaking and uh, on the rare occasions when um, if my computer's gone down or it's been in the workshop or whatever I've uh, rather than going through that painful process I've quite often just uh, I've 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 messaged a colleague and said would it be okay if uh, you analyze this recipe for
0: me rather than going through that pain on paper. Yeah, no, I can't imagine it. Um, But finally, what's your favourite way to eat almonds?
1: Oh, I think, Rosie, definitely just as they are. Um, I mean, you can't beat a handful of almonds, can you? Just neat um, as a snack. Um, But I have to say, I did make the most delicious, healthier version of Rocky Road a few weeks ago. Um, And instead of using biscuits, I put in um, popcorn unsalted popcorn we've got a popcorn maker which is is great um but also almonds um some raisins some cherries some marshmallows and it was an absolute hit it was just uh absolutely delicious but i mean i think that you know the thing with almonds is they're so versatile so you can put them on top of curries you can add them into stir fries they're great with cereal or porridge um but for me um i think just a handful on their own it's my probably my favorite way
0: Mm, yeah no they're they're my kind of go-to work snack as well I have them on my desk but um honestly the next time we see each other in person you're gonna have to bring up that rocky road because (laughs) that sounds absolutely delicious and very much up my street um thank you Juliet Kello for being my guest on this episode of Kernels of Nutrition all other podcasts in the series can be found at almonds.co.uk and by searching Kernels of Nutrition on your chosen podcast app This series is available across all podcast providers, including Spotify, Apple, Google, and ACAST. Subscribe and follow to get a notification when the latest episode is out.